taking a rebite out of our carbon emissions. This week, North America was swept with protests after the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police brought long-standing racial tensions to a boiling point. We'll give you some Edmonton context. Plus, by the time you're hearing this, the state of local emergency will have ended in Edmonton. Probably. We'll delve into why this means you should go to the beach and throw a rager. Please don't actually do that. It's a joke. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 88, where if you play back this episode at 88 times speed, you will actually be sent back to before episode one. When you do, convince Mike Nickel not to run for mayor. Nice. Onto the rapid fire. (laughs) Nice. In a move that has been called, quote, disingenuous at best, end quote, the UCP raised and lowered the flag for Pride Month in less than 24 hours. The flag was raised long enough for UCP MLA Leela Ahir to get a tweeted photo op extolling, quote, the progress we have made, end quote. When asked about the moment, a press secretary responded that the Minister of Culture was, quote, disappointed that there were no protesters to clear for the photo op. Over 200 megawatt hours of electricity will be generated each year in the largest building integrated solar array in Canada, on the roof of Edmonton's convention center. Edmonton is Canada's second sunniest city, so the large south-facing River Valley roof was a perfect candidate for the installation to allow the convention center to begin harvesting its own renewable energy. We caught a project manager last weekend just after he got back from the cannabis shop to pick up some supplies for his time off, and he told us, quote, Man, if we just, like, install some lights on the outside, we could power them with solar panels and they'd get all their energy back. And it would be like, infinite energy, dude. End quote. A spokesperson from the city of Edmonton later confirmed that the infinite energy was not a key pillar of Edmonton's climate change strategy. E-scooters are back, with both Lime and Bird setting up shop again in the city of Edmonton, deploying around 100 scooters each. The companies will have to corral and clean all the scooters at least once a day and recommends that users wash their hands before and after use and do not touch their face during their trips. Thankfully, Edmontonians are experts with scooter cleaning and spent most of last season preparing their fire-based scooter cleansing skills. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. This week, we're going to tell you about the Well-Endowed podcast by the Edmonton Community Foundation. It's hosted by Andrew Paul and Elizabeth Bonkink, produced by Lisa Pruden. And the podcast explores the impact of passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. That sounds like you, Troy. (laughs) Go figure. I was actually on the most recent episode, episode 72. It was on millennial activism and engagement. And like most people that come to this topic and talk to me, they were hoping for a sort of joyous, exuberant response about activism and how everything is all hunky-dory. And I told them, no one should run for council and activism is stupid. <laughs> I knew that was coming. You can listen to episode 72 at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Um, and you should know, of course, that the Edmonton Community Foundation helps people create endowment funds. The podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community, although perhaps not in this case. Uh, the wellendowedpodcast.com. <laughs> So I think we need to start with just the biggest topic this week. It was unavoidable because it was both on and turning social media off after everything went blackout on Tuesday. We won't recount the entire saga of George Floyd and the ensuing worldwide protests that happened afterwards. We're 
pretty sure we're not the best voices to really talk about this story in a broader context, but there's a lot of local Edmonton context that I think it's useful to talk about this week. Right, and I want to start with Taproot Edmonton itself. So uh, in addition to Troy and I being white co-hosts of this podcast, Karen Unland and I are the white co-founders of Taproot. And you know, for us, and like for a lot of people, this event has made it necessary to say out loud what we believe, but really we've not been sufficiently vocal about in the past. So like a lot of folks, we've been really taking the time to listen and to think about what we can do. And we know that actions uh, speak louder than words, although as journalists, we do hold words in high esteem. We've written about what we're planning to do on the Taproot Edmonton blog, so I won't read the whole thing, but you can you can check it out. The highlights are uh, that we're taking some action right now. We've already made a donation to the Canadian Association of Black Journalists, and we're planning to take some action later this summer. We are putting out a call for contributors, and we're going to actively encourage journalists who are Black, Indigenous, or people of color to answer that call. We know that a more diverse team means we'll do a better job of paying attention to our community. And then a longer term action, there are seven calls to action that were issued earlier this year by the Canadian Association of Black Journalists and Canadian Journalists of Color. Many of those actions are for larger organizations, but there are some that we can tackle and we are going to do that as well. Uh, The place we're going to start is around mentorship opportunities for aspiring journalists of color. So we want to be accountable for our words, backing them up with action. And we know there's still a lot of work to do. That's the taproot story. I know the leader of the city, Mayor Iveson, uh, took point and he gave a statement uh, about both this and light the bridge. Yeah, so the mayor put out a statement, as you would expect him to do. He basically said what needed to be said. Edmonton is not immune to racism. It exists here. It persists here. He talked about being committed to fighting against racism. Um, And then after calls on Twitter for uh, the the bridge to be uh, unlit, I guess, on Tuesday for what became Blackout Tuesday, the city of Edmonton responded that it was indeed going to do that. So it wasn't lit up on, on Tuesday in solidarity with those who were showing their support. Uh, for Black Lives Matter. It's interesting that Light the Bridge, it is lit for events and for uh, causes all around the year. And that makes it all the more poignant when the lights are turned off. I thought that was a helpful twist that really brought a lot of attention to the cause. Right. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about probably the biggest component of a lot of these discussions, a lot of these protests, it's the EPS. Police um, both perpetrated the murder of George Floyd and EPS hasn't been immune to criticism in the past, rightly so, of course, if you're following some of the developments that have come out in the past few years and now as events unfold. And the EPS did have a state. That's right. And we should just clarify the uh, alleged murder of George Floyd. The charges have been upgraded to second degree homicide, but of course have been yet to be proven. And then the other three officers have now also been charged there. So police chief Dale McPhee put out a statement in Edmonton, a, a video that he recorded. He called the death of George Floyd criminal. He talked about police needing to be held accountable for their actions. Uh, I think the video that he sent, the message that that he made was a good one to make. But of course, as you point out, police are really at the the heart of some of the concerns that people have here and the issues that Black people and, and other people of color have been facing. And the timing was not great, I suppose, for the Edmonton police, because another story came out this week about 
two officers posing to take a humiliating photo of, of uh, somebody that they had uh, arrested, uh, I believe it was for, for drug use. And so the police have had to say that that will be investigated. And it's an example of perhaps police using the privilege that they have in, in negative ways and, and not actually serving the community effectively. I think the most poignant with a bow on top example of not serving a community effectively and releasing a tone deaf statement probably came from the Eskimos this week when they tweeted in solidarity with uh, the protest and with Black Lives Matter and got some pretty easily expected backlash. Yeah, you could have seen this coming a mile away. Most people just simply replied and said, change your name. This is an issue that has come up many times before in Edmonton. Uh, every time there is some sort of uh, racial issue that people start discussing, the Edmonton Eskimos always comes up, the name of the team being a slur for Indigenous folks. And they are consistent in ignoring those calls to change the name uh, and, and in the past have said that they have no plans to do so. Um, so it was a pretty straightforward expected response and unfortunate that the, the team still doesn't seem to want to acknowledge that. So that was some of the broad responses we've seen from prominent Edmonton organizations. A lot of this comes down to the police. The police are generally who uh, black people and people of color tend to say we experience fear in our day-to-day lives because of policing, because of over-policing, and because of militarized policing. And part of that is uncontrollable police budgets. And we've talked about this in the past, not in the context of Black Lives Matter or in terms of uh, racialized minorities. In terms of just this budget is something that by any lens you look through, something that's out of control. Whenever you have a budget item that is as large as the Edmonton police budget is, it deserves more than a second look. It deserves to be analyzed and, and criticized. And there's a number of ways that you can come at that. So, you know, we we thought we would just share a little bit of fact about the Edmonton police budget um, amidst these calls for defunding the police that, uh, that you're probably reading about. So in Edmonton, the police is the second largest part of our operating budget. The city uh, documents put it at 14.9% of the total budget, which is ahead of public transit at 123 um, but behind the largest item, which is community services and attractions, which is 16.4% of the budget. I do want to stop you there because mm-hmm. I always bump on that, which it's a ridiculous accounting combination. Why is the zoo included with Kinsman Rec Center right. in the same line item? Yeah, Community services and attraction so many different things and also a line item that brings in revenue tons of user fees and admissions yeah we know from talking over the last eight weeks or what are nine weeks for the pandemic that it's transit and uh, rec centers that have caused a lot of the impact to revenue for the city so that's a good point in terms of tax increases last year's tax increase was 2.6 percent and 1.2 of that was attributed to the police service. And the city's own documents say that between 2013 and 2018, the budget grew 26%. The service itself grew by 433 uh, full-time equivalents in that time period. 112 of those were allocated to corporate services, which they said was required to catch up from uh, years of the focus being on the front line uh, for the police service. So it's a big uh, part of our budget, and it 
seems to grow every year. In 2018, Council did approve a policy that provides the EPS with funding certainty over the multi-year budget. There's a formula inside policy C604 that determines what the police increase will look like, but they generally uh, don't seem to request the police lower their budget much. They talk about requesting greater efficiencies from the police, and yet somehow every year it goes up. There's been a lot of talk, and uh, especially out of Los Angeles, there has been some action on uh, defunding the police or decreasing police budgets. As recently as June 26th of 2018, the city council meeting where they approved that consistent funding formula for police, do you think there is any room here politically or bureaucratically to actually start reducing the EPS budgets? Do you think there's a political will to do something like that? I think council is at the moment, more open than they ever have been in the past to finding efficiencies and finding ways to save money in the budgets. I think the pandemic has really brought that to the forefront. I don't know that they'll necessarily look to the police part of the budget to do that. And I I think it's probably a good thing in this case that we have a multi-year budget and we have a funding formula, so we can't just on a whim, make a a rash decision. Um, I do welcome greater debate about this. And I think it is important for councillors to consider all parts of the budget for cost savings. And and police should be on the table just alongside everything else. And we've long since had a lot of councillors talking the talk and some walking with the idea of harm reduction. And if you can have a social worker take care of someone in distress, that saves money over policing. But we have yet to see the concrete material de-escalation of actual policing there. We typically rely on nonprofits and community organizations to step up and handle the social distress and social disorder that we want to divert from police. But there hasn't been consistent or systemic funding towards those initiatives, at least definitely not on the scale of something like the EPS. Right. We're going to talk more about this in future weeks, but I think more importantly, we, Mac and I, are not going to talk as much about this. We'll have a guest on next week that will be more able to talk to some of these issues with authority and with a voice that is, importantly, not ours. So we'll move on to some things that I think our voices are better suited to talk about, which is bureaucratic council nonsense. Uh, The state of local emergency is now ending uh, as of midnight tonight, Thursday, um, unless there is a late night action by city council, the state of emergency in Edmonton will end. Interim city manager Adam Lachlan said that it is not being renewed. That was the recommendation from administration. Quote, uh, as a direct result of the good work Edmontonians have done to limit the spread of the virus, end quote. So administration said, we don't need this anymore. If we do, it can be put back into place with very short notice. They're going to keep the Expo Center open to um, Edmonton's vulnerable population um, so they can practice physical distancing, receive medical services, that kind of thing. So not a lot changes immediately, except I suppose that we can say we're no longer in a state of local emergency. Well, so they credited the good behavior of Edmontonians and our flattening of the curve. But wouldn't you say that it was actually good old John D from Ward 3 voting against this for the past three weeks that really put the cherry on top and convinced administration to not renew? That consistent voting had to have been the thing that changed their minds. Oh, yeah, no doubt. (laughs) Uh, According to his Twitter feed, absolutely, you should believe that. So what does this mean? The state of local emergency has ended. But like you said, nothing is 
actually changing for the most part. Well, I suppose the real actual thing that this means is that we return to pre-COVID operations, which means that we don't have um, this emergency management company making decisions. We'll go back to council making those decisions. Um, so administration will bring forward recommendations and, and, uh, and council will vote on them as we did beforehand. Um, that's probably the biggest material change. I think it's fair to say that administration and council have been more or less in lockstep throughout the whole uh, pandemic thus far. So I don't imagine that that changes anything uh, in terms of what we're likely to see have happen. Um, and it also doesn't change um, the need to follow public health orders and guidelines and things like that. And and they've also said, administration has said that they do want to be aligned with the province. And every indication from uh, Premier Kenny this week is that they are not going to hold back and they're going to proceed with phase two of the, of the relaunch for the province and, and potentially not renew uh, some of the public health orders that they've issued. One of the interesting uh, updates this week was there was going to be a letter written to the province asking for written confirmation that Edmonton peace officers will be allowed to enforce Dr. Hinshaw's orders even after the provincial state of emergency is expected to come to a close on the 15th of June. Um, and I thought that was really interesting, not just that the city was asking for confirmation, but that the city required the confirmation to be in writing and unassailable. Right. Why do you think they wanted that? I would say because they had confirmation that the Valley Line was fully funded uh, several times during the campaign. And lo and behold, here we are not quite sure if the Valley Line will ever receive funding. Um, but maybe that's just cynical. Council really only accomplished one thing this week. And it was a pretty big thing overall. Uh, we've long since had the north-south divide and fight over LRT. And this week in an 8-5 vote, the South won. Yeah, so Capital Line South, which will go from Century Park to Ellerslie Road, was prioritized over Metro Line North, which will go from Blatchford to Castle Downs. Both of those projects, the city says, were at the same stage of design, but they recommended essentially that Capital Line South be the priority because the city or the province already owns all the land that is necessary to build that line. Whereas for the Metro Line North, there's over 35 full and partial property acquisitions that need to be made. So uh, it kind of from that point of view, makes a lot of sense for the uh, South Line to be the one that gets prioritized. The other factor that probably is considered here is population. Uh, just like we talked about the ward boundaries recently expanding in the south and not changing much in the north, it's largely due to uh, growth in population in the south. And so you could make the argument that building the train there first is more aligned with where the usage is going to be. These are on the slate after Valley Line West is completed. So when you account for detailed design, land acquisitions, utility work prep, it could be well over a decade before any of these projects are actually started. So population modeling is a pretty huge component of this. Yeah, that's right. These are not shovel-ready projects that are going to happen tomorrow. So this is definitely a looking down the road. How can we be best prepared for what the city is going to look like at that point? Talking about funding of LRT, there was very little talk uh, from city council, at least that I heard, about funding from the province. And most of the talk came around federal funding. And that got Iveson talking about the prime minister's announcement this week 
that uh, there would be expedited funds for municipalities, which I don't think rang true to a lot of municipalities. No, Mayor Iveson said, quote, it must be clear, however, that the funds the PM announced have already been accounted for in municipal budgets. This is not new money, end quote. And he talked about continuing to advocate uh, for all levels of government to work together on on uh, funding for municipalities for this and, and other projects. Councillor Knack also talked about this. Um, he made a motion at council this week to continue pressing the provincial and federal governments for predictable funding for LRT. That was approved. Um, so that was about the extent we heard about about funding. But uh, you're right. We touched on this previously that the municipalities have been pushing for some sort of federal funding. Um, the prime minister's announcement felt to me very much like a we want to acknowledge that municipalities across the country are asking for funding. So we're going to say something that looks like we're helping them. But we also don't want to get into a fight with the provinces. So we're not going to overstep. For the most part, that did work. You had people like Councillor Mike Nickel, of course, saying we have a spending problem in Edmonton and that we don't need the uh, federal government to bail us out. We need to get our fiscal house in order, F, which sounds a lot like UCP talking points to me. Um, I don't. <laughs> I don't know if that rings true to anyone else. The conversation was definitely started this week uh, by Trudeau's actions, even though Trudeau really didn't act very much at all. One other thing I wanted to mention on, on this was from the, uh, the the report that went to council. Something caught my eye. It talked about Calgary. And uh, administration says in order to build these lines, they're going to have to buy new light rail vehicles, of course. Um, and they pointed out that these are the same ones that Calgary needs to procure for both replacement and for the green line, which they're uh, voting on later this month. And they said presents, quote, an opportunity to develop a coordinated financing and procurement strategy in order to secure the best competitive price, end quote. So uh, I thought that was interesting, an opportunity for Edmonton and Calgary to work together in another way on a big expensive thing like like buying vehicles for the light rail transit systems. That's really interesting. I had I had missed that section of the report. Administration did present this report, but I wonder if this is going on the direction of both mayors of Edmonton and Calgary to present this coordinated universal response to financing, because if Calgary and Edmonton are participating as an economic block, there's not much the province can do to stop that. Um, no. Because Calgary and Edmonton represent basically two thirds of the Albertan population. And a significant chunk of the economy. Yeah. Because no one can argue with that. Like, hey, let's buy in bulk with Calgary. That's an easy yes. But I think the collaboration and what that means for the future, that'll be an interesting point to watch going forward, because that might see future collaborations with municipalities directly with the federal government. That That is my prediction, at least under three more years of the UCP government, which has been, I would say, it's fair to say hostile to <laughs> LRT in municipalities. Yes. I, th I think that's going to be a really interesting thing to watch and how infrastructure gets funded in municipalities, that's going to be the big discussion of the next three years. And who knows, maybe the next federal election, because we have a minority government federally. We don't really know when the next federal election is going to be. Right. And like I said, if uh, council's open-minded now to new ways to save money, that could be a way to do it. So speaking of saving money, uh, I would say that the city put out a great way to save money and help the environment as they do. Others would disagree, but hey, it's my show, so I get to say my point first. 
What happened this week? The city announced the uh, environmental rebate programs that they had talked about previously. So there's rebates now for commercial building upgrades, for electric vehicle chargers, for solar installations on residential properties, and for electric bikes. So this is all part of the city's change for climate initiatives to try to lower our emissions overall. And uh, you can get some money back for doing any of those green friendly things. And just like how bike lanes are pennies on the infrastructure budget, so too is this entire rebate thing. It's $600,000 in a $3 billion operating budget. So this rebate program really doesn't mean much, but it's generated a lot of debate. And of course, who do you think chaired all of that debate? It was Councillor Mike Nickel, and he called this, quote, a bad use of taxpayers' money. And that quote got into the headline of just about every piece of media coverage surrounding this uh, rebate. Yeah, this is a failing of the media, I'm afraid. Uh, It's much sexier, I suppose, to write a story, a headline where you've got some he said, she said, and some tension than to write the truth that we need to do more to fight climate change. And this is a very small thing, but important thing that we can do to tackle that issue. Uh, So that's unfortunate. Councillor Nickel, it doesn't surprise me at all that he would say that. He did say something that I tend to agree with, though, this week. He said, quote, it just sends a horrible message to people who are tightening their belts, losing their jobs and shutting their businesses, end quote. I still think he's wrong. This is a good program. We should be doing this. Perhaps the timing could have been different. Although, on the other hand, it's spring. People are undertaking these projects. When else do you announce it? thought it was really interesting because I didn't think this e-bike rebate was going to happen. We had heard about it. Uh, in the past year that it was funded and was going to go ahead. I thought this was just going to be sort of like easy pickings, COVID pandemic, we'll do this next year. Yeah. Um, so I was very surprised this week when it went through. Also surprised because the city stuck with the e-bike portion of the rebate. This is where I draw a little bit of issue with the rebate because as a cyclist, uh, someone who doesn't drive a car very frequently, I considered increasing my carbon footprint this week by buying an e-bike. And it's weird that e-bikes, the bikes that have greater climate change impact than non-e-bikes, are the ones that are targeted for rebates. Why isn't there a rebate for just regular bicycles? Why isn't there a tax incentive to bike commute instead of vehicle commuting? These are the questions that I have, and e-bike rebates always strike me as like, tax incentives for buying electric cars, most of those end up being rich people getting a discount on their Tesla rather than Joe Schmo actually materially changing his carbon footprint. Uh, Granted, I would rather more rich people have a bike than more rich people have an extra car. That is change. I just don't know that it's the best change to hit. And I'd like to see more change down the line. Yeah, that's a great point. I I was wondering about that. Like, is there evidence or some research that suggests people are more likely to give up their cars for e-bikes than good old manual bikes? I don't know. You're right. It's weird that we wouldn't incentivize bikes full stop. I would suspect um, e-bikes make commutes easier. And the thinking is if commutes are easier, more people will use them. I think the critical failing of the logic is people who really embrace cycle commuting tend to embrace lifestyle changes that have smaller commute trips. So rather than continuing to live in the far south, they might live more centrally in a condo or an apartment or a 
duplex or small house. I feel like a lot of this is engineered by the planners in St. Albert um, who don't get on the ground, but it is positive. I'm not going to not going to totally smack it down. It is a positive change, which is not quite as positive as I'd like. Or Mike Nickel would like, I'm sure. How am I going to transition from this to chartered professional accountants? Well, I'm not, but we're just going to tell you about them anyway, because this episode is brought to you by Straight from the CPA's Mouth, a new podcast created by the CPA Education Foundation and funded by the Heshi CPA Knowledge Center. Uh, Alberta's chartered professional accountants, or CPAs, are expert on a wide range of topics and issues of interest to Alberta of interest to Albertans. Straight from the CPA's mouth has discussions on topics important to you from leadership skills, achieving career potential to financial literacy and how to make your tax refund bigger. You can find Straight from the CPA's mouth on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or of course on the CPA Education Foundation's website at cpaalberta.ca/foundation. That's cpaalberta.ca/foundation. And that's all for this week. It was a long week. I don't know if it's just because I have a new kitten who you should absolutely still follow on TikTok or because it seemed like the entire world was upheaving. Probably the latter. Um, but we'll be back next week and we're planning on having a uh, guest to talk about the Black Lives Matters initiative and how we can achieve positive social change in whatever way possible. Mac, you got anything else? Nope. I'm going to listen. Oh, Wow, nailed <laughs> nailed it. Uh, until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Simply.